Konnichiwa. And howdy y'all. I am Leslie. And I'm Laurie and welcome to Sumo Kaboom. Where we talk about all things sumo. Yeah and this week we have a really fascinating interview for you with Lynn Matsuoka. But I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that but first Newsflash. Okay, this week in news, this is this is what I got. Uh, I'll just give you a quick rundown. Then we'll get straight to this interview because it's it's fascinating to me. Did you hear who retired? This makes me so sad. I know. This was a shock. I know. I did not see this coming. I sort of did, but I, didn't. I know, but... It was still sad. I know. Grumpy Cat himself, Shohozan, is... Retired. Retiring. <gasps> he dropped out of Jurio, I guess, into the non-paying ranks, and he was like, that's it. The The bummer thing is, is that he, he doesn't hold any stock. And so he's going to retire, and then we're just like, he's not going to be part of the JSA. He's just going to disappear, is what I've heard. He's going to I mean, be- I hope he doesn't disappear forever he'll be out there in the world maybe he's gonna go to school maybe he's gonna maybe. start a business we have no idea what's next for him but and if he's listening if he's listening i hope he he hears that we wish him well in his retirement and there's lots of good things for him around the corner Do and you know, oh wait what so many women are so bummed about his retirement because he has a devoted fan club, especially on Twitter, who adore him. And I know those ladies are just going through withdrawal. I know they are. Yeah, it's not going to be easy for us, but I think I think we'll we'll get through. We'll get through. Um, Okay, so Asano Yama is back and he is officially, uh, by the way, the Bonzuke came out. That's another tidbit of, of news if you haven't caught that. But we're not discussing that one today. No. We're not, but Asano Yama is back and he's sitting uh, for Nagoya at Sandame 22, everyone. And so. he is going to scream through that division. <laughs> I, I feel really sorry for those kids. I do too. I feel bad for like the 16-year-olds who are like, oh God. But you know what? If you want to do well in sumo, you got to fight the big guys. So hey. Wouldn't it be fascinating? If he like gets himself like a tied like a three and three down there, I mean it like, could happen. It, it's not all fifteen year olds, you know. <laughs> I mean, Sandame is not like all the way down. No, where, like the kiddos are. Like he's with the guys, like the injured guys. Yeah, there's some there's some people sitting in Sandame that might give him a run for his money. So we'll see. We'll see how he how he does. But we wish him well. Um, all the wrestlers are back in action, practicing. They're getting ready for the tournament which is in what 14 days or by the time this comes out just 12 days so everyone we're going to be talking about it next week bingo cards and all of that but you know what's around the corner bingo sumo bingo and we hope you'll all be playing any other news oh my goodness i had such a ball this week talking with this lady lynn matsuoka and i have to say the person who connected us with john jacks who i also always want to call john Jacques forever but he's not he's he's john John jacks he's a legendary (laughs) guy who lives in hawaii and he's really been part of the american sumo uh, movement for many 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 years yeah he's so well connected and he 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 suggested yeah Yeah. we gotta talk to this lady and we're like who's this lady yeah who is this woman lynn i knew nothing about her at all and he didn't tell me anything he just said look her up and when I looked her up, 
I thought, oh my God, how did I miss this woman? She's a she, treasure. She's a complete treasure. And here's she, how. She is an, a beautiful artist of all sorts of artwork. Sumo World is one piece of her artwork. She was there in the sumo stables, drawing people at the sumo tournaments during the golden age of sumo. But not just that, she then went from that into being a color commentary person, a lady, no less, at NHK for 15 years. She was a commentator person. (laughs) Commentator person, a lady. A lady commentary person. <laughs> yes. Because the ladies are very different than the men yeah, commentators. Yeah, well, I get persons. excited about that because we don't have any female commentators right now. No, no. Okay, did that sound better than lady commentator person? Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, but it's all good. But we get what you mean. Okay. Yeah. But, but she, but mean, not she's only just that. Been, she's just lived this life that neither you and I have ever lived nor will we ever live being on the inside in the sumo world. And we won't tell you anymore because we want you to hear it from her lovely voice, which is amazing. And it was like a soft spot in my heart because it's so New York to me. I love her voice. Um, But here she is. Oh, this is one of my best ones here. I don't know if you can see it. I'd have to take oh, yeah. it out maybe. Wow. Oh, that's not no, we can, we can see that. That's, yeah, that's amazing. Perfect. This is um, Takanohana. They just mounted the dohyo and Musashi Maru. And then montage behind Takanohana is his opponent on the other side of the ring. And then the Obidashi behind Musashi Maru. So this is the kind of thing I do a lot of montage of everything that's going on at the dohyo. This is the... Uh, the grand champion Hoku Taumi, who is now Hakaku Oyakata and the chairman of the Sumo Association. Wow. That is? And I worked with him very closely because he was like, he he was in um, in the same, you know, Heya as Jonah Fuji and he was always the underling. And then suddenly he became grand champion and he was somebody, but Jonah Fuji always oh. got all the points, you know. Yeah. <laughs> But, so he's now the chairman of the Civil Association. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And what year do you think that was? 1989. Shonichi, first day of the tournament. This is atmospheric. Yes. It's um one of the wakaishu, one of the skebito, asleep in the in the uh, in the dressing room. You know, just exhausted because he's you know he's the slave to his amideshi, to the secretary yes. that he serves. So, um, Lynn, how did you yeah. get uh, access to? Backstage, is this when you were at NHK and you kind of had, you were able to- No, 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 it's before that. How I got in, it was kind of a fluke and I was just lucky. I never asked for it, but um, there was a guy who was doing the, uh, it's before they had the English language commentators on NHK. And I was invited as a a charter commentator (laughs) because, you know, everybody knew who I was and they knew that I was with them every day. So I certainly had to have something to say. And um, so he was doing this kind of a wrap up every day uh, at the NHK studio. I don't think it was NHK. I think it was another TV company. So he approached me. We, you know, we were kind of friends. I saw him around the the stadium all the time. So he approached me and he said, "Um, I'd like you to do some drawings that I could use for the backdrop for my TV show. So uh, I said, okay, where should I do them? He said, well, I'm going to get you a one show. A one show is uh, an armband. He said, I want you to go into the dressing room, if you don't mind. I thought, 
if you don't mind, <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> and because that's where you get the stuff that nobody else yeah. sees, you know? So um, so I had I had the wand show and I could go in anywhere I wanted to do anything I wanted. And nobody could say boo to me. And of course, this hasn't happened before. I mean, the reporters go in at, at a certain time, around 2.30, 3 o'clock. No, not even then. They're allowed to go in toward the end of the day. But they're men. And women never go into the dressing room, except, you know, during, you know, some of the, the show sumo, not the real tournament. The women are not allowed in there. And so I walked in and the guys already knew me because I, I was at practice every day. So nobody, you know, from the youngest guys to the top guys, I mean, they know who I am. So I walked in, it was no big deal. They didn't care. I just kind of sat down next to somebody and I started drawing. And again, they were used to my doing this for years. When I got all the drawings the guy needed and he blew them up like giant size and used them as backdrops for the, for his show, I just kept going in. I just hung on to the one show. And every tournament I'd say, hey, can I have the one show? Yeah, here. So I, I just did it for like two years. And then he said, I can't give it to you anymore because the Sumo Association doesn't want me to give it to you. I said, okay, fine. So I went in without the one show because they were so used to seeing me right. <clears throat> and nobody ever complained uh, until many years later, one, well, there's always one, you know, right. one guy was a little pissy and he said, uh, yeah, she's always coming in here. I don't think it's a good idea. And it happens that I was then engaged to marry Iwatora Zeki. You know about that, right, Tora? I, do, I don't. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I, it, it's a long story. It's in the, you know, I'm, I'm writing my memoir of my 42 years working sumo. And uh, there are a lot of stories in there. Some of it is about the sumo world behind the scenes, the whole thing. Some of it is about getting married in Japan, which I did three times. And uh, well, I was there for 40 years, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and I kept making mistakes. You know, my fault. I keep choosing the wrong guy. Anyway, um, I, I met Tora. And it's a long story. <clears throat> and he asked me to marry him. That's also a crazy story. Because I thought, what? <laughs> um, but I wound up marrying him. Oscar de Laurenta made my dress because he was a friend of mine and he loved it and he loved Torah. And um, so nobody knew at the moment. We were keeping it a secret. And uh, there was a top division guy in Takoyama Bay named Dayo. So he came up to me one day and he said, oh, my God, people are starting to talk about you and Torah. I thought it was supposed to be a secret. And I said, well, yeah. He said, well, people are starting to talk. I said, well, tell them they're crazy. They don't know what they're doing. They're talking about. So Tora was in the dressing room one day when this guy started complaining that, oh, that girl who does sumo drawings is always in here. You know, this is no good. And Tora walked up to him. And Tora, you know, is like a wallflower. He was very highly liked. Everybody loved Tora because he's, he's like, you know, like a lot of these guys, you know, he's a, he's a pussycat. And he would never speak up for himself and, you know, but he was damn good. You know, he was the smallest guy in the top division in his time because mm -hmm. he could take all the big guys down because he knew all the waza, all the techniques. What, what year was he uh, wrestling? He retired in 1978, I think. And he was a secretary at the beginning of the 70s, maybe the late 60s. I can't remember. I didn't know him then. Mm -hmm. I met him in 1970. 576 when I started going to Cascanabea every day. But he had had a very bad injury. And the sumo world is not famous for being clever about medical emergencies or <laughs> medical help. And anyway, that's another story. But um, so he lost the use of his left leg because the hamstring was disconnected behind the knee. Oh. Yeah, it was terrible. I mean, he lost the fight on the dojo when he was um, my gosh, uh, uh, number seven. And, um, and the guy, uh, fell on top of him and his leg was out at an odd angle. When the guy fell on top of him, it pulled out the middle. The hamstring has four legs, they call it. 
and it pulled out the middle two legs of the hamstring from behind his knee and it snapped into his thigh. Oh. And to this day, he's 72 years old and he still has this huge, you know, lump in the back of his thigh. And if you look at him, like he wears bathing suits or short shorts and he looks like he has this great, you know, muscular, it's not, it's, it's that, that muscle that had snapped into his thigh and has been sitting there all these years because it was, it, it rendered his leg useless for sumo. So after that, when you watched him do sumo, he did it standing, he always had his left leg in the air and he did sumo on one leg, which I mean, who could do that? But he did it because he had to. Oh. Because um, if he stepped on the left leg, he'd go down. This is so fascinating. Yeah. You were going to the Haya, and, and is that where your prior husband, is that where he saw you? Or how did you get- That's where we met. I'm interested in how that came to be. Well, I was just going to Cascana Bay every day. I had very high level introductions to three major stables. That's another long story. So I was giving carte blanche to come and go. So I, went, I went every single day. I was there at 7.30, drawing, drawing, drawing. And uh, then I'd go to the tournament every day if the tournament was on. But I went to the stables for practice even if the tournament wasn't on. So one day, uh, Tora, who I didn't really know, he came up to me after practice and he said that um, he had a good friend who was the producer of you know, Osaka of the UNICEF fundraising show. The guy asked him if he would ask me if I would donate some drawings to their UNICEF fundraiser. And if I did... Because every year I went to the Kyoto Jungyo, the Kyoto tour with everybody. And I paid for it myself and I somehow got along, even though my Japanese was like hardly existent in the 70s. And he said if I would donate some drawings to his show, he would sponsor or pay for my trip to Kyoto uh, and put me up in a Ryokan. And I said, yeah, I mean, I would have donated them anyway. So he put Tora, Iwatora, everybody called him Tora, or Torazeki. He put Torazeki in charge of me, which was great for me because I was no longer on my own. I went down on the bus with all the sumo wrestlers. That was the beginning of that because from then on, when I went on rural tours in the mountains and everything, I would go on the sumo bus where nobody was allowed, not even the journalists. Right. But I was given permission and I would sit on the bus and I would draw until I got nauseous and I put the sketchbook away for a half hour and I'd start drawing again until I got nauseous again. I'd get cars. And I did a lot of, I have some great drawings from the bus. And I'd be on the Rinjiresha, which was the, the train, the sumo train when they didn't take buses. It was just great. So I went down with Tora and his, uh, and the guys on the bus to Kyoto. And he escorted me in a taxi to the Ryokan, put me up there. Tora preceded me, you know, he's wearing his beautiful kimono. He's got his top knot. He's the sumo wrestler. So everybody says, oh, Sakitori, ah. Because, you know, all the little grandmas who are at least 95 years old to qualify to run a Ryokan, um, you know, they're all like rabid sumo fans right. and total groupies. So Tora walks, walks in swishing in his, you know, silk kimono and I'm following him. So Tora speaks up and he says, um, this is Lynn. He explained that we're good friends and that I'm working for the UNICEF and that uh, I'm going to be staying there for the duration of the tour of the Jungyo. He assured them that I was very savvy about the Japanese way of doing things. They should not worry. And he handed them a bunch of money. Uh -huh. And later I said to Tori, don't you tip them after it's over? He said, no, 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 no. You give them a lot of money up front and they take good care of you because now they're obligated. So that's the philosophy. And they took very good care of me. Anyway, so and then he picked me up every morning, took me to practice, took me to the stadium sat in the dressing room and, I, and, I, and that was that. And that's how I you know, started get, getting kind of embedded into the world of sumo. You know, it took me a long time to network and meet the right people and have them see my work, my artwork and agree that the artwork was quality and 
maybe I do a good job and maybe I'm trustworthy and a lot of maybes because, you know, people, a lot of people looked at me like, who the hell is this? We don't want her here because she's foreign and she's a woman. Two bad things against me, you know. I used to say, especially sitting in the dressing rooms of the top kabuki actors, which I did for 25 years and got some amazing drawings. My own mother wouldn't recognize me because my behavior was not the daughter she knew. It was um, everything that I could psychically and otherwise pick up and understand that was required of me. And I looked around and I watched all the other Japanese women, especially the older women. You want to learn how to function as a woman in Japanese society, especially traditional society, because these are traditional worlds where they're living way before the Meiji era. They're living two, three, four hundred years ago, some of these people. And some of them are old enough to have been alive then, I'm telling you. And um, so as a woman, I tried to mimic the behavior of every old lady I ever saw my body language, the way I would humble myself and the way I would bow to people. And, you know, a foreigner bowing is stupid looking, but if you do it in the right place at the right time and don't overdo it, it pleases them. And it makes them relax and feel comfortable with you. And by association with that particular behavior, assume that maybe you'll be okay. That is so fascinating. When I was living in uh, Japan, I was there for all of 98. And huh? so I came into the sport with Akebono and Musashi Maru. Right. And um, so I've always, they're like my gateway <laughs> sumo wrestler. Wow, you could do worse. Uh, right? <laughs> um, so I've been fascinated with it. But I know that you, um, you in your yeah. artwork, you have featured uh, quite a bit of those two wrestlers. Yeah, well, you know, when they came in, um, they spent a lot of time in my house because they uh, didn't speak Japanese and they wanted to eat American food. And I lived, you know, I had a house in Hawaii, you know, my kids, my kids loved that. I mean, they just felt at home. So they were always at the house. And then, you know, so I, it was easy to work with them. But I mean, I worked with everybody, not just with right. them. For years, I was at Cascano Bea with the, the Rigi Cho, the chairman of the Sumo Association. And he would always give me advice, you know. It's funny because when I would walk in, I would walk into Cascano Bea and people were sitting just inside the front door, kind of cowering and not getting near him because he was like a god to some people. You know how some people are. And, uh, and they'd say, oh, you can't get near him. He's the Richicho. And I'd say, yeah, yeah, what kind of master? And then I, because he, he was looking at me and he was patting, patting the tatami next to him, you know, like, come here and sit next to me. So that's what I did every day. And people were looking at me like, what's wrong with her? She's stupid. She's a foreigner. She doesn't know what the hell she's doing. Yeah, I had to ignore those people. But he always gave me really good advice. And one is like he said, I really love what you're doing and I support what you're doing and I want you to keep doing it and bring the beauty of sumo to the outside world because you come in here where nobody can come in from the outside world. He said, but I can't do anything special for you because I'm the Rijicho. I'm everybody's Rijicho, which means chairman. You know, I have to be there for everybody. I can't be there just for you and show favoritism. And you have to do the same thing. You can't just work with one guy because it's easy or comfortable. You have to work with everybody so that nobody feels left out. So I always remembered that advice. It was good advice, you know? So tell us a little bit about the style of the mm -hmm. artwork that you're doing and what it's called and what's special about it. Yeah, we can tell from looking at it that it is phenomenal, incredibly <laughs> unique and powerful and it gets so much across with the least amount of strokes possible. But I want oh, you, you to talk about it. Well, I appreciate that. I really do. 
I do re what you call reportage artwork. And that means, you know, drawing very fast, uh, drawing people or animals or whatever. You know, I work with equestrian out here because it's horse country, no sumo wrestlers, unfortunately. <laughs> so I studied with a great guy named Jack Potter, a fabulous teacher in New York for many years. And then I worked with sumo like night and day for 40 years. But I mean, the first two years I was there, all I did was sit at sumo day and night. This is a, a yobidashi. This yes. is a minute and a half drawing. Wow. Because the yobidashi, it's during the um, kabure, where the, uh, the, the katekyoji is up there on the dohyo, and he's holding up, you know, the beautiful um, calligraphy that shows you the names of the uh, pairing for the day. And then he turns around and he hands it to the yobidashi, who holds it up to the audience and shows it. And they're only there like a minute and a half, not even two minutes. So I had to draw it very fast. Yeah. And you were sitting like during a tournament in the sand seats or would you sit? Um, oh no, I'd be sitting like maybe three rows back from the, from the dohyo. You're drawing that with pencil, with charcoal? What are you drawing that with? I use a very, very, very soft black pencil. The Japanese always thought I was using a brush yeah. because you can get a lot, of, um, a lot of variety of line, thin and thick. So the Japanese people are used to brush paintings and they loved it because it reminded them of brush paintings. This is also done by the dohyo. That's gorgeous. How does an artist see something so quickly, especially in sumo, and translate that to paper in such a short period of time? I just draw very fast. You know, while, he, while he's there, I'm, I'm, drawing, I'm drawing what I see. And because he's there stationary for a minute and a half, it's like sitting duck, you know. But with these guys, for instance, um, well, Takanohana is on the dohyo and he's pretty stationary for probably 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. That's all I need to get the line drawing. And, and then I get uh, Musashi Maru. But the thing is that this is a very involved drawing. So, you know, I do the drawing first and then I paint into it. And this could take me the whole tournament practically to do it. Yeah. But because I do the line drawing first and then I may have to catch Musashi Maru two or three more times when he's standing at the dohyo doing the same thing with someone else, mm. you know, so I piece it together and uh, I never took, I never carried a camera, you know, we didn't have phones then we could take a picture. I never took pictures and uh, I just did it, you know, piece by piece over a period of many days. And I used to have these um, old men, I'd be sitting, <clears throat> I never sat in the first row cause I was terrified, you know, I didn't want anybody falling on me, yeah. but um, I would, I would always find an empty, you know what it looks like around the dohyo, they have the zabuton, the purple pillows. And invariably there are pillows that are vacant because people don't show up or they don't show up till later. So I would just like, you know, get in there and sit down like I own the place. That's the only way you have to do it. And I'd sit there and start drawing and people would say, what the hell is that? But then they saw me drawing and they got interested. So they let me alone. And, um, and then I had these guys, you know, these old guys and these funny you know these suits these from 1942 and they'd be they'd be crawling through the crowd pushing people aside and saying ah i like that can i have it and i'd say no <laughs> you know and then i realized that i shouldn't answer them that way so i started telling them yes you can have it for a million yen yeah <laughs> but then i started selling them for a million yen and three million yen and you know yeah was it sumo that kind of gave you your professional start in, in the art world? world oh, no. Like I mean, the reason I was in Japan in the first place is because I was dragged over there. <clears throat> I was being a fashion illustrator for Gimbel's department store in New York yeah. City. It's out of business, but they had acquired Saks Fifth Avenue. And they hired me just about out of college, you know, to be a fashion illustrator for Saks on staff. So I was doing that. But I wanted 
to do some freelance um, uh, illustration work because I love doing illustration. You know, very finished illustration. Mm -hmm. So I, I went to see uh, an art director at Esquire magazine and he happened to be Japanese. And he looked at my work and I showed him some of my fashion work and he said, um, would you like to do fashion for a Japanese company? And you know, me, I, I grew up with very provincial I and mean, they were wonderful parents, but they were very provincial, not very, not international at all. And I was, a, I was a bit provincial myself. There was no other place outside of me. It was New York was it, you know, that was it. There was no, I mean, you go to the edge of New York, you fall off the earth. I mean, really? Yeah. So I assumed it was in New York, some New York City. And I said, well, yeah, where in New York is it? He said, no, 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 it's uh, Tokyo. I didn't know where Tokyo was. I didn't care. I wasn't interested. That night I happened to have, happened to have a dinner appointment with, this kind of older man, he was a professor at Columbia University. He was a professor of Japanese something or other, Columbia University. And I met at a friend's party a week before and he had invited me to dinner. So that night I met him for dinner and he was old. He was like 48 years old or 45 years old. But to me, he was like ancient and he had this frizzled hair and his eyebrows like Solzhenitsyn. But he was, he was brilliant and you know, brilliant is sexy as people should know. And um, he was fascinating to talk with and I had nothing to talk to him about. He's a, Jap a professor of Japanese something or other. I didn't know he was a world famous Japanese scholar, translator of many books, notably Mishima, who, who was a good friend of his. Yeah, I was just like, you know, this crazy artist, you know, in New York, I was having dinner with this guy, I didn't know who he was. And I just to make conversation, I said, Oh, uh, I was offered a job to go to Tokyo today, to be a fashion illustrator. And he said, Well, you're going, aren't you? And I said, No, I don't. I have no interest in going to Japan. He said, No, no, you have to go. And he spent three hours convincing me I had to go. So I called the art director back the next day. I said, All right, put me on the list. I'll for consideration. I'll go. The art director called me a week later and he said, come in and see me. I went in and saw him. He said, well, we had 10 candidates and they chose you. Would you want to know why they chose you? I said, yeah, okay, why did they choose me? And they said, well, because they thought you would survive. It was like a couple of years before I thought about that. What did they mean? But after a couple of years in Japan, I understood exactly what they meant because not everybody would put up with a crap that I had to put up with. But I put up with it because, you know, I get a job that I can do well, and I did it. I constantly had feelings I wanted to grab my stuff and get back on a plane and get, it, get the hell out of there. But I stayed, and it was good that I stayed. And then I discovered Sumo one day on television, and it grabbed me like nothing had, nothing had ever grabbed me. And it literally became the rest of my life. Wow. You know, that's all I did was network, network, find people, meet people, you know, to get into the Sumo world. It became a full-time job. I even dreamed about it. I was eating, sleeping, and breathing sumo. I completely forgot to go home. I forgot <laughs> to go back to New York. I know. It's nuts. It became the beginning of the rest of my life, literally. Hmm. And I got into the sumo world because I was introduced to lots of people. But in the end, a guy named, uh, very important, a playwright, very famous playwright in his 70s, named Funabashi Seichi. And uh, he was the head of the Yokozuna Selection Committee. Can't get any higher than that as a no. civilian, you know, a non-sumo personnel. So he was blind, but he invited me to his house and his daughter, who I became very friendly with, was his, his eyes. And, uh, you know, when he needed sight. So I brought my portfolio and, and I showed her and he was, she was explaining in Japanese what she thought of my artwork, which was very good. And, um, what, what my thoughts were and what I wanted to do. And he introduced me to the three top sumo stables. 
And once uh, Funabachi Sensei said, Lynn is coming to do drawings of you, bring out the Zabaton and the tea, she's my guest. Everybody like treated me like royalty. And I started going to the three top sumo stables that was Tatsunami Bea, Katsukano Bea, and um, I can't remember what the other one was going come to me, but anyway, um, and I went, you know, and usually, you know, an honored guest goes once or twice, maybe three times, and then they disappear. Well, this, this guy never left. I just, I started going, and I never stopped going, and I was there until the point where, you know, they'd say, oh, Lynn, get your own Zabaton, you know, and after a few weeks, it was like, uh, Zabaton's over there. So I'd walk in, I'd get my own Zabaton, I'd sit down, and no, people ignored me, which is fine. I mean, that's all I required of them. Yeah. Ignoring me like I'm not here. The first stable I went to was Tatsunami Bea. They had a lot of top rikishi there. They had a Saikuni who was Ozeki. They had Kurohineyama who was Sekiwake and a whole bunch of other guys. And it's always the same way. Even if I, I've worked with the NFL, I've worked with Major League Baseball. It's always the same thing when I'm the new face. The guys kind of look at me for the first four days. Nobody gets near me. And on the fifth day, maybe the fourth day, the, the top guy, yeah. He walks up to the, the foreigner or the new face and says, okay, so let me see what you're doing. And that clinches it. That's when I get in with everybody. When they yeah. see the drawings, I'm in. Right. So the fourth day, Kurohimeyama and a couple other guys came up to me after practice and said, all right, so let's see what you're doing. So I gave them the sketchbook and they flipped through it and they saw their own face and they're saying, you know, in Japanese, of course, they say, hey, so-and-so, get over here. Look, look, she's got your face here. Look, look at you. Look at you. Your hair's all messed. Look at you. Oh, look, she even got the dirt on your on your chest, you know, when you fell down on the dirt. And they were like excited. Yeah. So all of a sudden it was okay. How long did it take you to kind of figure out, you know, going from I'm hooked on television to I know what's going on was it just every day in the stable you could pick it up pretty easily you know the different techniques and things like that or did was that a longer journey for you it's a good question but it was a pretty quick learning curve because for one thing what i'm doing all i'm doing i mean i'm drawing mm -hmm. but a hundred percent of the time i'm observing 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 i'm looking looking i am not looking anywhere else but watching them and you get a lot out of observing. Most people don't really see what they're looking at. And I had to, because if I didn't see it clearly, I couldn't get it down on my page. And I always took a translator with me. There were no end of English speaking Japanese people, men or women, who were absolutely thrilled to drop whatever they had that morning and take me to sumo and translate because nobody could go to sumo. You can't just walk into a sumo stable. 70s, 80s, 90s, you couldn't go into a sumo stable unless you knew somebody important. So when I would call somebody up and say, listen, I need somebody to go with me and sit at sumo and translate for me quietly. They have to understand the proper decorum. They have to be Japanese. I couldn't take a foreigner who spoke Japanese. Had to be a Japanese who knew how to act because you can't move, you can't jump around, you can't be stupid. You have to be very polite. You have to know what to do, you know, or what not to do more importantly. So um, I always had a translator with me and I always had good people who explained things to me. Like this one guy became a good friend of mine. Oh, next time I can show you this photo. It's wonderful. Um, of Iwashita Zeki. Unfortunately, he passed away when he was in, I think, his 30s. He was just the loveliest person in the world. He was, he became Sekiwaki and Tatsunani Bea. And he spoke a little English. We became very good friends. When he first came in as a baby, I mean, he was 15, which is when you're supposed to start sumo. They were throwing him around the dough hill like a rag doll, you know, rolling them around in the clay. And when you're sweating and you roll around in the clay, you, you come up looking like, you know, like a monster because you're covered with dark clay. And um, so it was explained to me that 
when he entered sumo, he was too fat. And he had to lose 100 pounds before they could start working him out. And they got him down 100 pounds within a couple of months. And then they started working him out and he, he rose to the top. But, you know, he wound up with, um, he was on, in, when he was in his early 30s, I think it was early 30s, late 20s, I'd have to look at my notes. He, uh, his kidneys were failing and he had to go on dialysis. And I knew his son, who was very, very sweet. In fact, I'm still in touch with his son. And his son called me in the middle of the night, the night. And he didn't speak English, but he said in English, I just want to cry when I think about this. He called me in the middle of the night and he said, my father is gone. He was the sweetest guy in the world. He was so smart and so kind. And, um, but, you know, I think the life killed him because they filled him up with alcohol and they rolled him around in the dirt and they probably injured, you know, these guys get so many injuries. Right. Um, it's just horrible. And they don't, they don't, they don't treat them right. They don't, they're, they're medical ability is piss poor that's the best I could say for it yeah I don't know if it's any better today that's the hard part you know when you watch sumo and you see all these guys get injured all the time and you know they do that in practice every single day you know and you think golly what they give for the love of the sport it's fascinating let's be let's let's say it like it is they do it for the love of the sport maybe in some part but let's be clear about it most guys, not all of them, there are a few who came from like Kanishiro. I remember one guy in Kaskana Bay came from a very wealthy family. Most guys go into sumo because they're a little hefty, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, as teenagers growing up, their parents are too poor to feed them because they have other children. So they send them into sumo. So somebody else will feed them and house them and clothe them. And they go in for the flash and dazzle. They go in to get famous uh, I'll tell you why my husband, Iwa Torizeki, he's not my husband any longer, but the, the guy who I married, his story is kind of tragic too. Uh, but part of it is when he was a youngster, he had one older brother and two younger brothers and his father had been a cop, but he was a gambler and he lost his job as a cop mm. and he continued to gamble. And one night gambling, he lost their house to the Yakuza, to the gangsters. Oh, wow. And nobody knew till the next day when the gangsters came and threw his father ran away. They threw out his mother and his three brothers. They threw him out of the house because they said, it's our house now. Get the F out, you know. And fortunately, he was able, he and his family, what was left of it was they were able to go live with their grandmother. Actually, it wasn't a blood, blood relative. His grandfather had had a stroke and was in a wheelchair and could not do anything. And he was married to his second wife who was not related to the boys or their mother, but she took them all in and she raised them. Wow. And, um, and his father, it's interesting because the Japanese, I don't know how you feel about this, but, or your, your listeners feel, but the Japanese are, believe in things like psychics and otherworldly things and ghosts and, oh boy, do I have ghost stories. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, his father, fell off a bridge years later and died, drowned. And he always wanted to know, did he commit suicide or did he Hmm. jump? And that makes a difference to a kid, I think. I don't know. But I knew a very, very powerful psychic in New York. And when we were married and living in New York City, the psychic came and she knew. She didn't know anything about Torah or anything about sumo or anything about anything about us. But she said, uh, you, she... She said to Torah, she said, you want to know when your father went off that bridge, did he jump 
or did he fall by accident? And she said, I want you to know he failed. He did not mean to jump. And Torah was so relieved. I mean, he still lost his father. But anyway, he wound up going into sumo at the age of 13 because he was an orphan and they allowed him in. Okay. And that's, he started his career then. And yeah. that was, that was so a good chance of making it, making it oh, for yourself. That's it. That's why I was talking about him because yeah. his mother also ran away. His mother ran away the day that his grandmother took him in. His mother ran away. Yeah, great people, right? Ooh, and sure. abandoned four kids. How can you do that? So he told me when I first met him that the reason he joined sumo is because he was hoping, and he was, he was only five foot nine. He was the shortest guy in the top division, 300 pounds, the lightest guy in the top division. Top division is, you know, 480, 550. He was 300 pounds, which is nothing. And um, he said he joined sumo because he was going to make it to the top, no matter what. And the top division is on TV. And he wants to get onto TV as a top division sumo wrestler so his mother will see him oh. and want to find him again. That's his story. God. And she did. She did. So I'm on, she found out he did make it to the top, which was against you know whatever you know rationale, anything rational, because he was so small. But he was a brilliant technician. Um, and his, some friends told his mother that, oh my God, isn't that your son on television? And she came to see him at the Osaka tournament and they sat down. Well, I'll tell that story in my book. I'll tell it. That's, that's in my book. You have to read the book. Okay. So <laughs> tell us about your book. Yeah, because we want to be able to tell our yeah. listeners how to find your amazing artwork, mm. which you can go to your website, but also your book, which is going to be all about your life involved in sumo because you... You were a commentator for the NHK. I mean, and I mean, you've just done everything. You were friends with uh, Chiono Fuji. Oh, he was my left. mentor. Yeah. You know, Hakuho. Oh, Hakuho. Akibono, Musashi Maru. I you mean, were there in the golden age. The golden age of sumo, yes. Well, this, I just want to show you a quick, a quick drawing. This is from the 70s, before I even knew who he was and before anybody knew who he was. This is Chiono Fuji. Very young. I think he was Giulio at the time. A very oh, quick pencil drawing of Jim. Yeah, look at that jawline. Oh I mean, it's amazing. The most how, handsome. Of how all much you can get across in just a, a few the shortest amount of time. Yeah. Like, how do you capture someone's essence and someone's beauty in just a few pencil drawings? That's well, you know, when I get my book done and it's published and I can stop working on it every day till it makes me crazy, um, I am going to start an online drawing class. Oh, I, I, I want to sign up. Okay. I'll let you know. I we can announce it on the podcast. Yes. But I took a, a class for nine years. I studied with Jack Potter, who was, he's not with us any longer, unfortunately, but he had a class at school of visual arts called drawing and thinking. And that's what it was. Okay. And I could always draw well, but after four or five months in his class, I could, you put anything in front of me in 30 seconds. I got it because wow. he knew and there were 30 people in the class and some of them were like architects who couldn't draw a straight line without a ruler. Yeah. And they were drawing by the end of the semester, but not like I do. I mean, I could draw anything in a nanosecond and I took that to Japan and that's what I used. So I was studying with Jack Potter for nine years, but I'd go back and forth to Japan and he let me sit with him. He was very strict, but he loved, he loved my work. And he also loved the fact that I was going to Japan all the time, you know, something yeah. that fascinated. Yeah. It was hard to fascinate Jack Potter. He was a brilliant, you know, illustrator, but um but I learned from him how to draw very fast. He would teach you to draw from the gut. And that's what I want to try to you know, teach people that you're looking with your eyes. You know, Your eyes is a conduit to the pencil in your hand. 
but you're feeling it in your gut. And he taught us in his way to, when you're looking at something, it's a flower, a bird, a person, whatever, uh, a tennis ball, doesn't matter. You feel it more than you see it. And when you can feel it, you feel it as you draw it. Yeah. And, and I, that's what I did. I mean, I would draw these guys. I know them better than they know themselves. You know, you captured not just their form, but their essence. Like that's what's fascinating when I I look at your work is that like you've picked up the expression of the heat of the moment. Oh my God. Thank you. But it's the truth. But that's what I see when I see your work. And I hope everyone who's listening to this podcast seeks out Lynn's work because you're obviously a fan of sumo, all of the, our listeners, but to see it from somebody who's there in the moment, picking up whatever that essence was, how many ever years ago, to look at your artwork is just like taking a, t- a trip back in time. Oh, thank you so much for saying, you've got to write a forward to my book. I mean, nobody said it better than you. I mean, Chiara Fuji said the most wonderful things. I, I was telling one, who was I talking to yesterday? Me. That was me. Yeah, I was telling you about how he went to my, went to all of my openings. Mm-hmm. And the guy was a Renaissance man. And he would say things like what you're saying. Um, I wanted him to write a forward to my book, but he died before I got a chance to ask him. I can't believe, you know, it's such a loss to lose that guy. Can you see this? Um, This is, uh, this is Hakuta Umi, grand champion in the dressing room, reading the Toikumi Hyo, which is today's fights. And he's got a skateboard behind him. Yeah, his, And that, he's now Hakaka Oyakata. He's the chairman of the Sumo Association now. This was like a long time ago, 1989. But uh, Konishiki said that to me. I did a drawing of him. I don't have it with me right here. I still own the original, but I, I have prints of it. And I have some prints where he signed it. They're big prints and he signed it. This big fat brush, they're beautiful. Still have a few left if anybody wants them. But I did a drawing of him sitting on the, t- the, the riser in, in, the, uh, in the dressing room while he was still Ozeki champion mm-hmm. and surrounded by his guys. And he was wearing this towel that had stars and stripes on it, which is why I did the drawing because he looked so great in that. And I did this full drawing, it took me three days. I was drawing like a madman, you know, trying to get it all done. And then I showed it to him after he retired, shortly yeah. after. Yeah. And he looked at it and there were tears in his eyes and he said, you know, he's this big hulk. And when you talk to him, uh, Konishki, I used to say that you have no peripheral vision. It's Konishki from east to west. <laughs> you know, sure. from top to bottom, all Konishki. And he, he was standing there, he was holding the drawing and he was looking at it. And there were tears in his eyes. And he said, man, he said, this is how I felt when I was at the top. He could see, he could read his face. But, you know, I... I pick up their vibes and their sensibilities and their feelings, and I feel what they feel. Otherwise, I can't do it. I mean, it's it's um, like an empath, yeah. but I use that for my drawings. And um, so I, I don't know. I'm just lucky I have that. I can do uh, that. It's an incredible talent. It is so such you. a gift. Well, I just want to show this. Can you see it with the it's yes. Takanohana? It's a montage of Takanohana and Akibono, and it's one of my favorite pieces. I'm going to say right here that it was stolen in Hawaii, the original. I want it back. But I have a beautiful print edition of it. That's and it's available, the very limited edition. And yeah, it's Takanohana Akebono with a tachimochi in the middle. And it's well, signed with my chop was, and the whole thing. Was Takanohana one of your favorite subjects? Or did you have a favorite subject or just all of them? 
Yeah, who was your no, all of them, you know? Yeah. But the thing is that there are people, of course, who are special. Um, I knew Takanohana from the time he was five years old, you know? Mm-hmm. And his his brother, uh, Wakanohana, I mean, they were, they were, you know, fat little kids rolling around the dojo being totally <laughs> obnoxious when they were little. And they grew up to be who you know them to be. And I just followed them since they were kids. So, you know, I loved them. And they're very sweet, very nice. Takanohana is a very sweet, nice, lovely person. And he really got ripped to pieces. The way he was used, abused, and eaten up. His older brother, Wakanohana, was smart and got out of the sumo world. But I have to say, I can't say I have any favorites. But the guy who meant the most to me was Jonah Fuji. Because I just followed him since he was like a child in sumo. He had just come into the top division. And he was always very receptive, you know, to my drawing him. He's always very nice. And he'd always, you know, make comments like, that sucks, or you shouldn't do that, or start over, that's no good, you know, or don't draw that guy, he's ugly. You know, I mean, he, I mean, he, he spoke his mind. And he did to me. I, I'm, I think he probably did to other people too. But um, I spent a lot of time with him. I used to go with him to Trader Vic's, which is my favorite restaurant in the whole world, in Tokyo at the Niotani Hotel. And um, once a year, we would go in the middle of dinner service, you know, like on a Friday night, and I'd bring my portfolio. He only wanted to see the drawings I did with him in them. Didn't want to see anybody else. <laughs> Sorry, that, that's hilarious. That's Yona Fuji. And, um, and we would go through, go through the drawings and the, the paintings. You know, I start with a drawing and winds up being a painting. He, he loved to eat like I love to eat, you know, no entrees. They would put two big tables together and we'd have every appetizer that they made spread out on these two big tables. And that's what we ate. Really? And of course, when we walked through the restaurant, they always paraded us through the restaurant to the end, to the last possible yeah. place we could sit. So everybody, like you could hear forks dropping and people gasping because this guy was like a god. Yeah. And he wore this beautiful green kimono, looked like an emerald stone. And of course, his beautiful chamagi, like I was telling you the other day. He would say, I have the most beautiful chomange, don't I? Nobody has one like I do. And I was, of course. Yes, it's the best. And um, it was beautiful. Um, and we would sit there and I would show him all the drawings and paintings I did of him that year. And of course, I would take top guys to Trader Vic's and I would never get a bill because they always calmed me if I brought in the stars, you know, so that was good for me. And we'd go through all the drawings and all the paintings and he'd pick the one you would say, are chodai. Are means that one. It's slang. Chodai, give me. Okay. Oh, and, would you? And that means that one was gone, you know? I had to give it to him. So at the end of his life, he had eight of my very best paintings. Oh. But there was one that I still have that I'll show you next time that I refused to give him. And next time we talk, I'll, I'll tell you, because I have to show you in pantomime what he did, because I refused to give it to him. Okay. Because it took me three tournaments to get it done. It's my it's my best ever. And I still own it. And I have prints of it. But he threw a tantrum when I told him I wouldn't give it to him. Anyway. Really? <laughs> it was really funny. Was we'll he just larger than life when you were in his presence? I mean, was he just towering or was he just what was his essence? It's a good question, a very interesting one. And you know, celebrities look larger than life and and that's what they're they're presented as you know because the hype has to be to the max to make them who who they want you to see they had him down as six feet tall okay and he's not alive now so i will 
bust the myth. Um, (laughs) And his shoulders were like huge. And that was, I was telling you, because he had a problem with his shoulders keep getting dislocated. So he built his shoulders up like crazy to keep his bones together. But he worked out like a demon. And he, he had very low, you know, fat ratio, um, you know, mm-hmm. he was all muscle, but I was five foot nine. And I have to tell you when I, I, I mean, I spent a lot of time with him we would stand in front of each other and talk, we were eye to eye. And maybe he was five, he was five ten. He was not six feet tall. Maybe the Chonmage <laughs> gave him the extra inches. They measured they with the Chonmage. <laughs> I don't know. And I never cared. I mean, who cares? Yeah, who Look cares? at him on the doyo. And the guy was a Renaissance man. I told you that story. But I mean, he would critique my artwork and he was always right. And he would say, if you did this, or you did that, it would be better. Or if you didn't do that, it would be worse. And he was always right. And I didn't know it. I was doing, you know, I do my drawings by instinct and gut. I'm not thinking. Yeah. But he would look at it and analyze it with his brilliant mind. And he'd say, no, no, no. And he was always right. And he would give me, you know, advice as to, how to deal with people and how to talk to people and who to ignore and who not to ignore. He was just, he was an amazing man. You have to give me one story about Hakaho. Ah! <laughs> just cause he's my man. Oh, he's, he's a beautiful man. He's a beautiful human being. One of the sweetest, nicest people I've ever met ever, you know, in Sumo or anywhere. <clears throat> At a certain point when he was coming up in the ranks, I think he was Sekiwake. And, you know, you, you say in sumo, you never say you're going to be grand champion. You never think about it. You just keep working your ass off until maybe you make it. If you're lucky, but very few people make it, you know. Right. And you just don't say, oh, I'm going to be grand champion. Nobody would say that unless they were nuts or like such an egotist. Anyway, so I think he was Sekiwaki at the time. And uh, I was commuting back and forth between New York City and Tokyo, continuing my work and doing the sumo commentary. And um, so I went to see his practice one day. And after practice, we sat by the dohyo, just the two of us. And we were talking for a while. I told him, he said, well, what are you doing in New York City? And I said, well, there's no sumo, unfortunately. So I'm working with basketball. I'm working with the New York Knicks. And I always said, I worked with the New York Jets years ago doing drawings. And then when Joe Namath was the quarterback, you know, and I worked with, um, and I was working with the New York Knicks. And I always said, you know, I specialize in losing teams, you know, <laughs> But, you know, they all make good, good drawings. Um, so I said, I'm working with the New York Knicks. He said, oh, my God, really? And he launched into this story about he said he always wanted to be a professional basketball player. And he was really into basketball, seriously, growing up. But people, you know, around him when he was uh, going into his teens convinced him to try sumo. Just try it. Just go to go to Tokyo and try it. and Look what happened. You know, yeah, that was yeah. good advice. But he really loves basketball. So we were talking about basketball, you know, for like an hour. <laughs> loves it but he's he's really a sweetheart one of the nicest people you ever want to know yeah. i could just talk to I you know. for hours we could talk forever i did a cover for sumo world magazine did you see it i'll, no. I'll email it to you no and I it's a portrait know. it's a portrait of hakuho at the tachiya it's one of my best paintings i really would like i'd like to offer it as a as a, a print but this is what i, I want to do real quick i want to offer do we have another minute yeah yes. because you need to raise money to you know fund your efforts here which are wonderful and um, so what I would like to offer is I did uh, two series of offset litho prints, really beautiful portraits of different vikshi. Um, but I have a lot of the prints and I can offer these prints if people would like to make a minimum of a $50 donation to you and you'd have to tell them how they do that. 
a minimum of a $50 donation. They have to come to me through my website, uh, contact me through the contact us form, get in touch with me. Uh, and then it's not up yet, but in the next week, I will put up the different prints that are available and they can choose which print they want. And I will send them one of those prints, I'll even sign it, and I'll send them the print that they choose. If they make you a $50 donation and you tell you confirm they did it, I'll send them one of those prints. Oh my gosh, okay. you are so kind. Yes. Hey, I want to help, you know. Wow, that's awesome. It's very you. generous. Well, let's help people rise to the occasion. Yeah, you have to do it. So tell people how to find you online. What's your website? The website is, everybody tells me I should change it. You could go to linmatsuoka.com and it will take you to my website. The official URL is www.hamptonsartist.com, H-A-M-P-T-O-N-S artist.com. I, I was looking at it and I think anybody who is a sports fan, your artwork is amazing and so many other sports. So like a lot of people love sumo, but they also are fans of many other sports. So your eyes will just be like, a goggle. Is that a word? Oh, thank a you. Yeah, yeah. Um, looking at all of your other work. Thank you. Yeah, well, I've worked with baseball and football. Yeah. I know. And animals. I love the animals that you do as well. I know. It's just so cool. Yeah. Uh, thank, Liz, you. thank you so, thank you so much. incredibly much for giving us your time. Also, just your insider's perspective that just nobody has on such a golden era of sumo wrestling and being there at a time when no one else had a had a peek into the world is is yeah business. there was nobody else there in the 70s yeah. and 80s and it was the golden age of sumo which is yeah. what i'm writing about in my memoir yes so when people come into my website and tell me they've donated to you and they tell me which image they want me to send them uh with their permission i'll put them on a list of people who will be notified when i'm having book launches perfect um, perfect and we do need to have another discussion because oh, we yes. even get into the world of your color commentary at NHK and how you did that and what you talked about <laughs> and what it was as a woman to be doing that. Like there's so much we could cover. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, we're going to have to do this hours again. in the day. I know, I know. Isn't that wonderful though? There's a never ending number of, you know, interesting things we could talk about forever and ever. So there's your nice. website. Are you also on social? Yeah, I have a Facebook, uh, The Secret Worlds of Lynn Matsuoka. And you're on I, Instagram. I'm on Instagram at Reportage Artist. Perfect. Because I'm a Reportage Artist. It's at Reportage Artist. Lynn, thank, 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 you, thank, thank you, you. Thank 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 you. Talk to you again soon, I hope. Okay. Okay. Yes. Bye. 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 I, I think this is just going to be part one. I know because I there's just so many more things questions I have and I know like she's so like oh it's not a big deal I hung out with like legend 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 <laughs> yeah. and I don't oh, want a I... fangirl on her and just be like uh can you please tell me about legend legend but she's a legend in her own way you know yeah. she's an incredible I'm gonna say this right repartee no reportage reportage yeah reportage if you read it it looks like report age reportage reportage but an incredible artist. By the way, watch the YouTube clips of, of this uh, podcast because you can see her lift up the artwork into the frame and you'll be able to see the full interview with some of her artwork. Just blew my mind with her talent, but yes. just her stories could go on forever. So we 
We definitely need to have her back. And definitely check out her website, y'all, so you can look at the prints. If you want to print, all you got to do is send us a $50 donation to our Ko-Fi account, coffee account, however you want to say that. And also go to her website and say, hey, I just made a donation and here's the print I want and we'll get it to you. And then you'll be on our list for her autobiography when it gets released, which I will be the first one to buy that because you know it's going to be full of, I mean, she's going to spill the tea. And we didn't even get to the calendar. She told me earlier on a phone call that the plan is to finish this by the end of summer so that hopefully by the fall, it's going to be printed and ready to go. (gasps) I know. So you can read about all of those names, all of those famous people. And there's more. Y'all, there's so, so much more that came out in the phone calls that I had with her over this week. Fascinating lady. And just sweet to boot. Well, thank you, Lynn. And to all of our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview and we will be back at you next week till then i'm leslie i'm laurie see y'all later bye